I think in the 80s, it really started to become apparent. But in particular, uh, the early 90s uh, is where, certainly in New South Wales, the government really started to worry. In 1990, Eastern Australia was struck by a massive flood that covered more than one million square kilometres of Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria. The flood claimed seven lives, caused 60 injuries and left more than 5,000 people temporarily homeless. However, Simon Mitrovic from the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology Sydney says it's what would come next that no one was ready for. There was a massive cyanobacterial bloom, blue-green algal bloom, across the Darling River. Following the floods, the waters of the Darling River, the third longest river in the country, turned a sludgy green in an algal bloom that was called, in pure form, more dangerous than cyanide. That sort of spanned over a 1,000 kilometres, and that caused a fair bit of panic. People living along the river were told to not touch or drink the water, as many had already seen massive losses among their cattle and sheep. And following that, the New South Wales government issued a state of emergency. And uh, that really, that was sort of um, front-page media... The toxic Darling River made headlines around the world, and it even shifted the way we emote environmental disasters. Ian Smales, chief scientist at the Department of Water Resources at the time, said, The Darling has suffered what amounts to a massive heart attack. Media coverage also referred to the Darling River as sick or dying. But there was something positive to come out of all this. This was one of the first visible instances that what we do as humans can have a massive effect on the marine ecosystems that surround us. Today on the show, we're looking at a number of different issues, but they're ultimately all connected. Today, we're looking at how we're affecting our water supply in ways you may have never imagined. You're listening to Think Sustainability, heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Jake Morecambe. Now, the algal bloom that formed in the Darling River was such a big deal because nothing had ever happened to this scale in the country's history. And this event isn't just known as an algal bloom, but something called eutrophication? That's right, eutrophication. What is it? I guess the simplest way to explain it is uh, the nutrient enrichment of waterways. So that is nutrients in excess of natural. The resultant problems are things like algal blooms, and they can be potentially toxic as well. Simon was undertaking his PhD in this area and travelled down to the Darling to check out the bloom. And they were able to piece together that this bloom occurred because the floods the year before set the right conditions for a bloom to happen where after the floods, a number of dry months followed, where water flows in the river slowed down drastically. As soon as water flow slows down, you can start getting conditions of favour, particularly cyanobacterial growth, and that is in particular where the surface water heats up relative to the bottom water of a river. And when this happens, they form scums. So you see these algal scums. 
And the main reason eutrophication occurred here was due to the fertilizers that farmers were using along the skirts of the Darling River. In a simple way, people adding fertilizer to their lawns. When we get rainfall events, the excess stuff can wash off and go down the stormwater and quickly enter coastal environments and rivers and creeks and lakes. The result in this case was high levels of phosphorus and nitrogen in the water. Most aquatic ecosystems are fueled by algae, which is sort of the bottom of the food chain. When you add nutrients to that, excess nutrients, and you have eutrophication, that algae can grow rapidly, and the types of algae that grow can change, which aren't eaten as easily by the main organisms that eat algae, which are the zooplankton. You go to the bottom line, and everyone suffers from it. That's right. Since the Darling River bloom, a lot of farmers have actually switched up the fertilizers that they use on their land, and are more cautious of it running down into the water. But there are other forms of runoff that are harder to track. You know, we kind of think about all these products that we use every day to improve our quality of life, but the question kind of arises: like, well, where do they go after they go down the drain or after they go down the toilet? This is Lee Blaney, associate professor from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Lee's research looks at emerging contaminants in the natural environment, and is looking at how things like soaps, shampoos, care products end up travelling down the drain and into our water. But not only care products. A lot of people in the past, at least in the U.S. Have been advised if they have older medications or expired medications to flush those down the toilet. Old prescriptions, contraceptives, even steroids—these contaminants, as Lee calls them. So I usually refer to these chemicals as contaminants of emerging concern. Are also known as endocrine disruptors that disrupt the endocrine system, the glands in the body that produce important hormones. These EDs. Although containing microscopic chemicals, can have a massive effect, especially on marine wildlife. There is a 2007 study that looked at introducing a molecule called ethanol estradiol. This is the active ingredient in the birth control drug into an experimental lake at very low concentrations. So these are concentrations of around five nanograms per liter. So that's Five parts per trillion, so like one drop in an Olympic-sized swimming pool, very small concentrations. And what they actually saw is that even at those low concentrations, the population of fathead minnows, a freshwater fish, or the males actually got feminized, and they started looking sexually more like females. And so now this lake, you can imagine, has a bunch of fish. You know that look like females. They can't make babies, and so the population of fathead minnows actually crashed in that lake. You'd mentioned in the U.S. when you have old drugs in the cabinet, you're kind of told to flush them down the toilet. Is there a difference between what happens when you flush them down against if it's had contact with the human body? Yeah, interesting question. Let me first maybe back up a second. In the past, people were advised. To flush old medications, that's not the case any longer. So the best thing to do right now, if you have expired medications or old medications that you're not using, the best thing would be to deposit them in like a drug take back program,、um, which I believe exists in Australia as well as the U.S. 
coming back to your question, one of the big differences will be, you know, that when we ingest these molecules, when they go into our body, um, some of them will get metabolized. And while they are getting metabolized, the pharmaceutical might actually break down. And so what we're excreting isn't going to be like the full dosage. However, other pharmaceuticals that we metabolize may do the complete opposite and form something else altogether. You can imagine as these pharmaceuticals get into the environment, you know, they're undergoing different degradation processes. Maybe it's biological, maybe it's chemical, maybe it's just through interactions with light. And so we're going to see these transformations happening to the chemical molecule. But oftentimes, they're kind of small, slight changes in the chemical structure. And so we're really interested in kind of identifying whether or not some of those products still retain the same kind of pharmacological activity. And that's what Lee is trying to figure out. If these newly formed molecules are in fact potential contaminants. Right now, I think that's the question that we need to keep asking um, and kind of keep looking for those unknown unknowns. There's one particular product, not a pharmaceutical, that has already been flagged as a potential problem contaminant. And there've already been a number of efforts to try and reduce the impact of this product when it breaks down in the water. And this product is something you're probably very familiar with here in Australia. That's sunscreen. One of the concerns with sunscreens is that there's some evidence that a couple of sunscreen agents are toxic to corals and can result in coral bleaching. So we actually are working on a project right now in a couple of sensitive locations with coral reefs to try to identify what are the levels of sunscreens in the water, what are the levels in the sediment, and then what levels actually get accumulated into the coral tissue. What is it about the properties of the sunscreen that have an effect on coral ecosystems? I don't think there's really a universal understanding of this issue as yet. You know, in the greater context of coral bleaching in the environment, you know, how does this kind of measure up with oceans warming up, with ocean acidification? I would say one of the big challenges with this world, we're thinking about like tens of thousands of different chemicals. And how are we making sure that we're actually measuring the right toxicity endpoints for all of them is a huge challenge. And that's definitely something that people are trying to figure out right now. Coming up next, you'll hear about something else that's making its way into our water that's only recently been labelled as a contaminant. And according to the World Health Organization, is an issue on par with climate change. When you go to the beach, you're probably thinking to get some sun, get some grub, or maybe take a dip in the ocean. There was an interesting study that came out about swimmers in the UK. You're not probably thinking about the threat of antibiotic-resistant bacterias looming in the water. This study looked at swimmers and surfers. 
This is Maurizio Labate from the I3 Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. And Maurizio is talking about a research project that found UK beachgoers were three times more likely to carry resistance genes than the general population. This was due to the fact that if you're swimming in the ocean, at some point you're probably going to swallow some water, accidentally, of course. And these people were found to be swallowing antibiotic-resistant E. coli. Swallowing that water will also allow the organisms and genes to get into the gut. E. coli is a bacteria that comes in many forms. Most E. coli are actually harmless and already live in your gut. But there are some strains that can make you sick. And this presents a problem. It was back in 2014 the World Health Organization raised antibiotic resistance as a global concern on par with climate change. But until this point, the issue of antibiotic resistance is most commonly thought of in a clinical or hospital environment. But the fact that we are now seeing these antibiotic-resistant genes and bacterias in the natural environment is raising some red flags. Because what if we start to see these antibiotic-resistant bacterias making their way into our drinking water? Maurizio says, however, that this is all about context. It depends on the community and what infrastructure they have in place. So uh, places that uh, have water shortages might recycle more of their water. And so for them, it's probably a greater risk that antibiotics will be in their water supply. In Sydney, 80% of our water is from catchment, so from rainfall. That's probably less likely to be an issue. But one of the major issues of concern is that we don't know how these resistant bacterias react in the natural environment or what effect they could have because we've never seen them in these ecosystems before. Uh, Resistant genes and antibiotics are now being called pollutants, which I think is quite fascinating, because you recognise that they shouldn't be in the environment. When were they kind of termed as pollutants? Um, Well, it's been termed that in the academic literature in the last five, probably six or seven years. I don't think I've seen it being referred to that in the popular media yet, Um, terming something a pollutant, I think, really changes the way we think about something, right? People go, hang on a sec, that's something that shouldn't be there. Hopefully, I think, having that terminology being used can really kind of gain some traction. As global populations increase and more stresses are put on the availability of resources, the issue of water security is one of utmost importance. In a country like Australia, where we have equipped systems and generally good access to clean drinking water, we should be more pragmatic in protecting the supply we have, rather than continue to pump contaminants into it. Inevitably, however, things are going to end up into our water that are out of our control. But what we can do is put more efforts into screening and filtering what is going into our finite supply. And one of the major ways to do this is to focus on managing our wastewater. For every drug that we take, some fraction of it gets excreted into wastewater. All these different chemicals in wastewater. So when that wastewater gets pumped back into rivers, it actually um, hasn't got the nitrogen and phosphorus, so it's much cleaner. When you hear wastewater, you most likely think of our waste, that being human waste, what goes down the toilet and through a series of pipelines and tubes. 
The way our wastewater is treated comes down to three levels of treatment. Level one, don't want to use too much technical language, but primary is just when you remove the solids and you just let everything else go in. Level two, secondary is trying to remove more of the nutrients. And level three,、um, and then tertiary is more fine removal of nutrients and disinfection to remove potential bacterial pathogens. Our waste typically flows to a wastewater treatment facility, in which it goes through a number of processes to make sure it's clean enough to be deposited elsewhere. Whether that be deep ocean drop-off, where it goes through a series of pipelines and back out into the ocean, or going into local waterways like creeks and rivers. But as wastewater treatment gets more complex, it also becomes extraordinarily expensive. To remove all that, and we have to ask the question: Is it worth going all that way? However, wastewater doesn't just mean our waste, human waste, but it can also mean the dirty waters that come from practices like agriculture, which, with eutrophication, can be the fertilizer runoff mixed with rainwater or other liquids that travel down into water supplies like rivers. Treating this wastewater is a little more complicated because it involves less tech and more emphasis on how the farm operates as a system. So, if we're looking at an issue like fertilizer runoff, that could mean switching to less phosphorus and nitrogen-heavy fertilizers, but also reassessing crop yields and how much fertilizer need be used in the first place, and also the levels of irrigation waters sprayed across the land. Australia has a tangled relationship with water. We are the driest inhabited continent on the planet, and are no stranger to hot weather conditions and drought. Every state and territory around the country has enacted its own water restrictions, limiting usage when it comes to watering your lawn, washing your car, or spraying down the pavement. When it comes to our relationship with water, this is where the emphasis has been placed, and for good reason. But when it comes to issues like rising rates of contaminants in our water supply, this needs just as much attention. Eutrophication alone costs the Australian government $240 million each year in damages, and pharmaceutical runoff and the rise of antibiotic-resistant genes and bacteria in our water. Could up the ante on these economic and ecological burdens, but there's one other thing we need to consider, and that's not only that these technologies can be expensive, so we should be considering what treatment setup goes where, but also the fact that the wastewater treatment process itself does carry a heavy carbon footprint. Back to Lee Blaney. In terms of wastewater treatment, you know we have the technology now to remove. These chemicals, but it costs a lot of energy, and so you know we use a lot of water in the energy industry in terms of cooling our power plants, but we also use a lot of energy in the water industry, you know, mostly to pump water from the drinking water treatment plant to people's homes. And so, are we going to upgrade kind of the energy usage in our wastewater treatment plants to remove things like pharmaceuticals? We can,、um, but it's already a very intricately tied system. And so, thinking about the overall sustainability of kind of that water energy nexus is important. There's so many other issues, I suppose, that are factoring into a policymaker's mind or a politician's mind. Maurizio Labate. And how you get this problem to be at the top five? 
of their list is, is, is difficult. But I'd like to think that perhaps if we kind of go out there and talk about it, that people will kind of switch on and go, hang on, what is my MP doing about that? Um, so I think these are all things that we can do. It really just comes back to regulations. It comes back to economics. And then at the end of the day, it really just comes back to, you know, how much energy are we willing to put into solving this issue? That's Think Sustainability today. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to jump onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. All you have to do is search for Think Sustainability. And while you are there, leave us a review. It really does help others find the show. We also have a website, 2ser.com forward slash Think Sustainability. More info there and also some past shows you can catch up on. This show is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Jake Morecambe, and I'll catch you next time.